Good morning. As you just heard, I was. It's been a while, perhaps, since I was a student at HGS, uh, but this was my field education placement one year. So much like many of our other leaders this morning, I guess we all have that in common, <laughs> that we did our field ed at Memorial Church. They may call it something different now, but we did it. Did it. And uh, so it's great to be here. And the sermon title, It is Good That We Are Here, or It is Good For Us To Be Here, is drawn from a verse in Luke that we just heard read. Little did I know at the time that I titled the sermon how true it would be, because an airline, who will go unnamed since it's Sunday, and we're supposed to be charitable on Sunday, uh, stranded us for over 24 hours, and I actually, we actually wondered, were we going to get here? So it turns out that the title is really, really true, at least for me today. It is good that we are here. So uh, thank you all very much for the end. Memorial Church hospitality in all these gazillion changes of we're here, we're not here, we're here, we're not here, we're coming in, we're not coming in. Um, they were super flexible about uh, taking care of us in a kind of, oh, let's just admit it, yes, stressful. But I promise it's Sunday. I'm not naming that airline. Our gospel lesson for this morning is the story of the transfiguration, which we just heard read. And I got carried away by thinking about the airline, so I want to say one other word of greeting before I enter the sermon, which is uh, greetings from Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Uh, we are, like HGS, um, an ecumenical divinity school. So we have students from all traditions, denominations. Unlike HGS, we are the youngest university divinity school in the country. We, so it's a lo lovely contrast that we were founded in 1999. So we're pretty young, relatively speaking. And I also am not going to make them stand up but I am going to give a shout out this morning to one of my graduates who is currently a Cambridge resident and is here this morning. So not only do I have family and friends, but, well, I also have a, a graduate who's a friend. So greetings from us to you. Thank you. Now we'll go back to the transfiguration. An unusual story, but today is Transfiguration Sunday, hence why we're reading this. In the story of the Transfiguration, Jesus leaves the hustle and bustle of his many public activities that have kept him busy up until this point in his ministry for a prayer retreat in the place where his religious tradition teaches that the presence of God can and will be found on the top of a mountain. In the Exodus story that was also read, Moses too goes to the top of a mountain. Unlike Moses in the Exodus story, though, Jesus does not go up the mountain alone, but takes three of his followers up the mountain with him so that they, too, can learn how to balance intense activity with times of retreat. This is a story of many parts, the Transfiguration. It contains a dramatic disclosure of the divine, and at the same time, it invites us to journey into the unknown, 
So it discloses and it makes us wonder, huh? All at the same time. This combination of knowing and not knowing shapes how the story's characters act. It definitely guides, as we'll hear more, what Peter says and wants to do. But it is also shaped how the church, through many centuries, has tried to make sense of this story and what it means for the life of the Christian community. Jesus does have his moment of prayer on the mountaintop, and like Moses in the Exodus story, finds the presence of God. While Jesus is praying, the story tells us, the appearance of his face changed. And it's that uh, his face changing that leads to the story being called transfiguration, because he's transfigured. He looks different. And his clothes become dazzling white, the English translation reads. But Luke's Greek is even more evocative. His clothes become white like the flashes of lightning. This is more than fresh out of the laundry white towels. Not really that kind of white. This is the brightness of light and not stable light. A succession of flashes of light each one more dazzling than the next, and so bright, think about being out in a lightning storm, so bright that our eyes can only process two things, dazzling light and the absence of dazzling light. That's about all that we can process out of this kind of whiteness. In the Exodus story, Moses' face is also transfigured. It also shines with the dazzling presence of God. And his face becomes so radiant that he put a veil over it. Why? So that the people would not be so distracted by the dazzling radiance that they could not see the radiant glory of God that led to Moses' radiance. So... Light, in its own way, can be so bright that you can't see. And this is the tension, really, at the beginning of this story. Is it so bright that we cannot see? Because all we can see is light. And you know that impression that it leaves on your eyes when you look at something super bright and you look away, and all you still see is the residue of the earlier brightness. Luke handles that with the disciples by the fact that the eyelids of Peter, James, and John are weighed down with sleep. Actually, he says, sleep is weighing down their eyelids. And with their effort to stay awake, they have in all likelihood witnessed most of the light show through half-closed eyes. Allowing their eyes to adjust to the light so that they can see. However, what they saw probably made them wonder whether they were awake or dreaming. Because where there had first been only Jesus, before they kind of dozed off, now they saw Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So, kind of enter into that for a moment. You went up the mountain with Jesus? You were trying to stay awake? You thought you'd stayed awake, 
and you looked and saw this dazzling light show of Jesus with what you recognize from your tradition is knowing he was with Moses and Elijah. So their new teacher was in the company of two of Israel's most revered figures. And these two figures, Moses and Elijah, were the models for all subsequent teachers and leaders. So all of a sudden, their new teacher kind of takes on a different role when they see him in conversation with Moses and Elijah. And the glory vision makes clear that Jesus is now part of God's continuing story with Israel. And not only do they see, they also overhear Peter, James, and John. And what do they overhear? A conversation between Moses, Elijah, or among Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, in which the three of them are discussing where and how Jesus will continue God's sacred story. And he will continue the sacred story through his departure that will take place at Jerusalem. Any reader of Luke's gospel, particularly by this point, we're in the ninth chapter, we're a third of the way, a quarter, a third of the way through the story, knows that the journey to Jerusalem is the journey to Jesus' death. So as we listen to this story, the reader is pulled in two different directions at once, marveling at the transfigured Jesus and also asked to ponder the upcoming death of Jesus. All in the same moment on this mountaintop. It is at this point that Moses and Elijah start to end the conversation and to leave Jesus. And it is fitting that they now move to leave him alone. Because the stories of Moses and Elijah and their accomplishments are in the past. And Jesus' story and his accomplishments still lie ahead in the future. So the past glory steps off center stage so that the present and the future can be the focus. But Peter, who we are told in the story, does not know what he is saying, poor Peter who never knows what he's saying, does not want this extraordinary moment to end. And so he says, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And here Peter is right. It is good to, for, him, for them to be there in the presence of the holy. And Peter offers to do what his religious tradition tells him you do in the presence of the holy. Build a booth, a tabernacle, a temple, a dwelling place where you know the holy can be found and the holy can be revered. Peter does not want this experience of the radiant glory of the presence of God to end. So Peter wants to get to work building a tabernacle where the holy can be found and revered. 
But in revering, Peter also introduces an element of controlling this experience of the holy. He wants to stay on the mountaintop to revel in the radiance. But this holy blessing will not stay on the mountain. Jesus will, whether Peter understands it or wants it to happen or not, Jesus and the blessing and the holiness will travel to Jerusalem. This is why Luke says Peter doesn't know what he is saying. Because Peter can't see beyond the radiant light. That's what Peter sees. The glory and holiness of God is transfiguring radiance. It can't be getting down from the mountain. It has to be this high point of the radiant glory of God. Peter, though, is interrupted before he can go grab his building materials. He is literally interrupted since the story says that while Peter was still talking, the cloud appeared. Then God's voice from the cloud takes center stage. And God's voice says two things. This radiant one is my chosen son. And listen to him. And from that point forward to the end of the story, neither Peter, James, nor John speaks a word. It is silent from this point forward. Because if they are going to obey the word of God, they need to be quiet so that they will be able to listen for the word when the Radiant One speaks. The dynamics of the story of the Transfiguration are very odd. It begins with a dramatic high point. Dazzling brightness, a vision of Moses and Elijah, the voice of God from a cloud. And ends, well, let's be honest, it just stops. The main characters walk off the stage in silence. And the story leaves us kind of stuck in the middle. Between the dramatic epiphany of the radiant glory of God and the rest of the story that is still to come, of what awaits the characters, as including Jesus, as they head to Jerusalem. We're just stuck in the middle. Everything about this story is liminal. Peter, James, and John, at the boundary of sleep and wakefulness, present, past, and future, become a seamless moment as Moses and Elijah chat with Jesus. We are left on a mountaintop from which we will, at some point, have to hike back down. Nothing is settled in this story. And interestingly and importantly, nothing is settled about how the church here celebrates this story either. Today, as it says on the front of your bulletin, is the last Sunday after the Epiphany. And as it is for almost all Protestant communions. In the Revised Common Lectionary, Transfiguration Sunday always falls today. 
on the last Sunday after the Epiphany. At the end of the season of Epiphany, and just days away from the beginning of Lent. A liminal moment in the church here. Epiphany, the season that has carried us from Christmas through now, reveals is a season that's about the revelation and disclosure of the glory and presence of God. That's what the season is about. Today's the last day of it, the last day after the Epiphany. And Lent begins the journey to Jerusalem. That's also mentioned in this story. So we are at an in-between Sunday. We know, the story has shown us, the radiant presence of God, the whole season of Epiphany has been about revealing the presence. It's a season of light. And yet, we also know that in just a few days, on Ash Wednesday, we will re-enter the Lenten story of suffering and death. The story of the transfiguration with its incomparable vision of the holy anticipates the victory of the resurrection. Yet, its reminder about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem also anticipates the long journey of the cross. The transfiguration is a story of disclosure and a story of journey. So it is perfectly placed on this Sunday that wraps up the season of disclosure and points us toward the Lenten journey. Perfectly placed on the last Sunday after the Epiphany. Except that, for Roman Catholics, Transfiguration Sunday is always celebrated on the second Sunday of Lent. Not before Lent, but embedded in the story of Lent. So that the radiant revelation of the glory of God is not a prelude to the journey, but is part of the journey. And in the Orthodox communion, the Feast of the Transfiguration is celebrated on the second or third Sunday in August. That location determined by where you are in reading through the gospel story. So it ends up in August, not here. Not Lent, not the prelude to Lent. So worshiping communities across and through time have not known how to respond to the story of the transfiguration any more than Peter knew what to do. Let's make a booth. Let's set a date for the festival. We need to try to stabilize and fix in time and space something that is, in essence, destabilizing of all of our notions of time and space. But we're humans, and we do what we got to do. We've got to try to make it fit. The story of the Transfiguration paints a picture of the holy that brings us to the limits of language and the limits of our imagination. The closest we can get is to say that the story can get with words is to say, it's like dazzling flashes of lightning. 
That's how bright it is. That's how radiant it is. Dazzling flashes of lightning. And yet this story, coupled with the dazzling radiance of the holy presence of God. Because the word glory means radiance. So when it talks about glory, it means that which shines, coming from the Exodus story. Yet this story in Luke also reminds us of the suffering and death that belong to the holy. Moses and Elijah converse with Jesus about his journey to Jerusalem that will end at the cross. This story of the transfiguration draws us into an experience that stretches the possibility of language. How do you talk about the radiant glory of God? And an experience, suffering and death, that cannot be glibly told. Both radiant holiness and suffering and death push our language, and the capacity of our language to name, to the limits. The transfiguration cautions us about forms of saying and doing that assume we can define and delimit the experience of the holy. The voice of God stopped Peter's plan to build dwellings for the holy and instead led the disciples into a time of silence. And so for us this Sunday, in this in-between time, as we prepare to make sense of this dramatic revelation, this dramatic epiphany of the holy, and as we prepare to re-enter the story of the cross, we are invited to stop, to listen, to learn again what God's beloved Son has in store, however that may surprise us and challenge our expectations and certainties. And since we live in a time where everything is a certainty and where there is endless noise, and endless opinions, and endless words about just about everything, and perhaps especially about how we name and talk about God, what God wills, what God wants, where God can be found, who can find God, the command to listen, a story that invites us into silence, is really a radically other story from what our experiences often are. We are invited to listen. Because the truth is, you can't hear if you don't stop talking. So we are invited to listen. The story of the transfiguration invites us to put our words and deeds on hold for the moment, long enough to be overcome in silenced awe at the presence of the holy, of things we cannot name 
and of things we cannot always comprehend. This experience can be, as it was for the disciples in this story, frightening. Because it may lead us somewhere we do not expect. And frightening as we move out of the surrealistic light show on the mountaintop and hike down from the mountain so that we can walk again the journey of suffering and death. Nice to remember, though, on this liminal Sunday, at the end of the Epiphany, as we anticipate Lent, that both the surrealistic light show and the journey of suffering and death belong to the story of God with us. Radiant holiness that may take our breath away and the heartbreak of the journey to Jerusalem that may also take our breath away. It is good that we are here so that we can share in the disclosure of God's radiant presence and welcome the silence and the listening that we will need to undertake the journey that lies ahead. So, be awed, be awed by the unknown, be awed by the unfathomable, let us be. Don't be afraid to be afraid. The disciples are frightened. And how not? Light that doesn't make any sense. And Wednesday, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This is the journey that begins again. So, welcome the holy and listen through the silence.